Knight's thought. That Gary Puckett from Gary Puckett and the Union Gap is a perv, man. I don't know if you've ever heard this song before. It's kind of impossible not to hear it. The song is called Young Girl, and then in parentheses, like they do in a lot of pop songs, Get Out of My Mind, okay? Now, the title alone should should tell you that you got, you got to be, you got to run away from this guy, okay? Uh, but Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, they were a popular uh, rock and roll band in the 60s and early 70s. They recorded uh, such hits as Willpower. But, but the song Young Girl Get Out of My Mind is always just stuck in me as yuck. And you never really hear people talk about it that much, which is, which is odd. They don't really play it so much on the radio anymore because most of the radio stations have switched formats. You know, this used to play on the oldies station when I was growing up and I would hear it all the time. Uh, but now the oldies is like 80s and early 90s music. I don't even think they play that on the on the terrestrial radio anymore. You have to have satellite radio and listen to like the 90s on 9 or something. But but when I was in high school, I drove a 1990 Honda Accord. And uh, one day I was backing this car out of the driveway. And I think I used to blame it on just the bad landscaping of my parents' house. But now I'm pretty sure, you know, I was 16. I was a bad driver. I backed this thing into like a low hanging branch and it snapped off the antenna of, uh, of my car. And from that moment on, I couldn't listen to any of the radio stations at all in Birmingham. All I could do is I, I, I had to listen to, uh, the oldie station. That's the only radio station I got loud and clear. And so my senior year of high school, I was driving around listening to oldies music. And, and, and that was my soundtrack in my senior year in high school. I had the same exact soundtrack when I was a senior in high school as my parents did when they were seniors in high school. And I liked it. It was the first time I really got into music uh, that was made before I was born and First time I really heard the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and uh, first time I hold, uh, I heard like, uh, you know, the animals house of the rising sun and uh, that accident of my antenna snapping off when I was 16, 17 years old. However, however it was informed my uh, taste and a lot of pop culture, I guess that I still carry with me today. And it's very difficult uh, now, I, I, I would think, for teenagers to really discover media that was around before they were born. But anyway, that's beside the topic. Fortunately, it happened to me, and I'm glad that it did. But I would love this music, but I would always have to turn it off when that creepy Gary Puckett came on. And he started singing, Young Girl, Get Out of My, Ma- get out of my Mind. Here's the lyrics. <laughs> All right, if you don't remember them, okay? Uh, young girl, get out of my mind. 
My love for you is way out of line. Better run, girl. You're much too young, girl. With all the charms of a woman, you've kept the secret of your youth. You led me to believe you're old enough to give me love. And how it, now it hurts to know the truth. Oh, beneath your perfume and makeup, you're just a baby in disguise. Yikes. You know, with all the talk of canceling things like uh, these days, like Splash Mountain and taking Gone with the Wind off of, off of like HBO and all that, you don't hear anybody talking about canceling Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, but uh, it may be a good idea for them to, to think about doing that. So yeah, it's about this guy who falls for this girl who he thinks is uh, the age of consent. And something happens. I don't know what. Maybe he just realizes that she's not, or maybe he asks for her uh, driver's license and she's not able to produce one. But then he's like, I got to get away before I go too far. You know. So even though like it, he, the guy may be an accidental pedophile it's still gross you know so yeah every time this gary puckett song came on i had to and and what was making me think of this well i heard it this week i can't remember on what i think i heard it oh yeah it came on my uh my spotify i was listening to uh to a playlist of music from the 1960s and uh yeah this, this uh gary puckett and the union gap young girl get out of my mind came on and I had to immediately do what I always did when I was a kid, you know, turn it off, flip to something else. No, I don't want to hear it. Well, from Birmingham, Alabama, this is Mike Booty. I'm your host for the Midnight Citizen Show. Yes, welcome in. It's good to have you. Got a great show for you tonight. This is something that we do every Saturday night here in the summer of 2020. <laughs> the bummer summer of 2020, where everything just seems like it sucks. But uh, hopefully this is one thing that doesn't. I'm glad you're able to join me here. I'm live streaming tonight. So if you are live, if you are live with me tonight, welcome. I appreciate it. You don't have to feel like you have to watch the whole live stream because I do have a pretty epic show for you planned tonight. So if you have to duck out, go to bed, whatever you got church in the morning. I totally understand. Uh, this live stream will be up for you on YouTube tomorrow, barring any technical difficulties. Like there always seems to be spring up, but anyway, and of course this is a podcast. It will be released in RSS form tomorrow evening on Sunday. But if you're here with me right now, live, welcome, please feel free to comment. I can't check all the comments as they come in because it'll distract me. I'm horribly ADHD, but I will be happy to check them during the, uh, during the music breaks, of which we have one. During the moment where we take a pause and we take a trip down to the Video Street Video Store to watch some old videos of old. That was redundant. Yeah. 
And later on in the show, of course, we have a trip, another trip to Viscaga, Alabama to read some tales from Viscaga, Alabama. That nice little place in an alternate reality not too long ago. Some good Southern Gothic fiction for you tonight at the end. So yeah, it's an epic show. I want you to stick around or don't. You can always come back later. (laughs) So, you know, maybe I'm being a little bit too hard on Gary Puckett. Because the song actually wasn't written by him. It was written by this guy named Jerry Fuller. I did some research on this this week, actually. But still, you know, Gary still delivered the message. So it doesn't really make it quite right. But there is this thing about a lot of uh, music, a lot of pop music that spreads controversial ideas or talks about touchy subjects. And this is actually covered in this movie, Under the Silver Lake. Uh, The fact that most of the music that sort of guides our lives and informs us as human beings and is there and our highest of highs and our lowest of lows, and it's always there to soothe us, you know, wasn't written by the people who we tend to believe, uh, care about the, the words, you know, they're, they're just the messengers. The actual lyrics are written by people behind the scenes who may indeed have ulterior motives. Now this is very conspiratorial. I don't know if it's actually true and I don't think anybody's ever going to know if it's actually true unless there's some kind of a top level whistleblower within the government, you know, like the IRS or, (laughs) or at the CIA saying, yes, yes, I actually did write love, love me do, you know, that song's not about loving me do. Well, it's about nuclear war. Um, I, you know, I don't know if that's ever going to (laughs) happen, but we do have these people behind the scenes who are writing very controversial things for, for, for mass consumption, you know, for us to take in and, and make popular and they guide our lives and they inform us and they get within our psyche and they start making us do questionable things. Right. So what I was going to say is this, is that when somebody like Gary Puckett, okay, uh, comes out and says such a controversial thing as young girl, get out of my mind. I'm, or I'm going to have sex with you. All right. It's something that just like hits you over the head so hard that you just kind of accept it as reality. Okay. There are fringe beliefs and there are people who are not afraid to express their fringe beliefs. And once they start doing it, uh, we kind of go along with the program But, you know, the, the the interesting thing is, is that, you know, right now we obviously live in the age of fringe beliefs and people just coming out and saying really outrageous things. And I, I think a lot of them are doing it just to see who will bite. Right? Like the anger and the vitriol that they receive from their crazy rants, uh, that's the product there's really nothing that they want you to do about it, but get mad. Okay. 
And what does that getting mad do? It keeps us from being productive and actually accomplishing things. And I see that we have kind of a lot of this happen lately. Um, it also allows the... Well, okay... I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I want to play you this uh, short video compilation. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna play the whole thing for you. Okay. Um. But I think it is interesting. Okay. Um. This week in Florida, there was uh, some meeting of like a, a city council or a, a government council or, or whatever. I didn't do my research on this. Okay. But um. A bunch of these people, you know, got up, you know, for a while, our, our world was taken over by people who believed that vaccines were bad for you. You know, we had like these anti-vaxxers and now it seems like more and more we have these anti-maskers that people are really crusading against. These are people who say that, you know, wearing a masks, you know, they, they infringe on our freedoms or whatever. Okay. So like, yeah, let me play this for a second. Thank you for your comments, ma'am. And they want to throw God's wonderful breathing system out the door. You're all turning your backs on it. In the beginning, God formed man out of the earth and breathed his breath in him, and he became a living soul. Where do you derive the authority to regulate human breathing? What you say is the political dogma that they're trying to shove down our throats on every commercial, in every store, and it's disgusting. Every single one of you that are obeying the devil's laws are going to be arrested. And you, doctor, are going to be arrested for crimes against humanity. Let me ask you all, do you believe you're God? Do you believe you can override God's divine plan for our lives? You're removing our freedoms and stomping on our constitutional rights by these communist dictatorship orders or laws you want to mandate. I love how they've got this, uh, you know, dopey, goofy music playing in the background to kind of dominionatize these people. Human being that goes against the freedom of choice. Okay. You cannot mandate. You literally cannot mandate somebody to wear a mask knowing that that mask is killing people. It literally is killing people. Says masks are not killing people and do not pose a health risk. But COVID-19 has killed 122,000 Americans. One of you okay, have a smirk behind that little mask, but every single one of you are going to get punished by God. You cannot, you cannot escape God. You cannot escape God. I'm going to say that again. You cannot escape God, not even with the mask or six feet. Okay, six feet. All right. So, yeah, we've seen enough of that. I think you get the idea. Okay, so, uh, you know, this is a video that's obviously put out by um, people who want you to stay informed, who, who really, you know, care about COVID-19 and, and the fact that it is a very real virus and obviously very dangerous. Okay. But they're doing it by not necessarily telling you what you can do or uh, giving you information that progresses our knowledge. Uh, it's shining the light on these people who are just making these out insane, outla outlandish arguments. 
you know, they're, they're ranting against, uh, they're, they're talking about how, you know, this is not what God wants. It's unconstitutional. It's, uh, it's going against our human rights to wear masks. And I think later on in the video, the woman rants against, uh, you know, Bill Gates and 5g and all these other instruments of the devil. Okay. And obviously this is insane. I mean, there are people in the world who probably believe this, but what I was thinking as I was watching this video is, okay, so what? There are, there are fringe people out there who are not afraid to get in front of a microphone and go into public and, um, make these claims. What I was thinking is, is that we really have to be careful about giving these people, uh, a microphone and giving them power. Obviously this is America and I do believe in free speech and everybody should be able to get a microphone. But you know, this video, <laughs> uh, has gotten quite a lot, uh, has gotten quite a lot of views, 445,900 views. And that's probably just on this site. Uh, it's probably been reposted. I've seen it pop up in several different, uh, Facebook feeds, you know, this week and it's there to, make us, uh, see that these people are, are the enemies and and these people are out there and they walk amongst us. And it's, it's dangerous to live in a world with these people. And, but I can't help but think that some of these people, and again, this is going to be incredibly conspiratorial and, and, and I in no way subscribe to this at all. I'm just putting it out there because this has been done before. They could be plants, okay? We could be uh, feeding into what they want to say because they're they're trying to get us to focus on the enemy rather than solutions. And there's this character in that novel, Inherent Vice, named Coy Harlingen. Uh, he's this uh, rot musician. And the government took him and they faked his death. And then, and then they took him and they planted him in all of these radical groups in California in the 1960s. And they said, okay, today you're going to go to the Nixon rally and you're going to get up on a, on a table and rant against Nixon. And you're, you need to make sure that all the television cameras see you so that when the cops take you down, the radical groups who are watching television will be like, okay, he's legit. We want him for the weather underground, you know? So now the government has somebody that they can plant into all of these radical leftist groups. And part of me sees that that may be what's happening right now is that we've got so many people right now who are not afraid to get on camera and say these wild outlandish beliefs that maybe these people are, you know, maybe a radical militant alt-right group will see this woman. Okay. And I'll put it up here so you can see. No, that's wrong. We'll see this woman right here and they'll be like, okay, get me that woman. Get me that woman who hates Bill Gates. She's all right. people may does that make any sense <laughs> i don't know so yeah yeah so welcome in so yeah 
We're here in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a, been a beautiful, just an absolutely beautiful week here in town. That's not really true. I mean, it's been raining, but it's okay to have summer storms. Sitting in here during the day, trapped inside, watching the rain. I've been getting out a little bit. Yeah, this, uh, you know, quarantine is lifting and people are going outside again. And I had a meeting with my uh, principal this week, because as I said, I'm a teacher and I had a meeting with my principal this week. And she said that as of now, we are planning to go back to school in August. We're going to socially distance. We're going to wear masks. Um, the whole world is ready to, to get back out there and put safety restrictions in place and, and all that. But yet there continues to be a lot of people out there, of course, and, and I see them walking by my Midnight Citizen studio every night, not wearing masks, walking down to bars, but you know. Yeah, this whole thing with masks has just gotten out of control. I mean, you know, just how some people wear them, some people don't. People who don't wear them see it as an infringement on their liberties or whatever. It's become more of a uh, political philosophy to wear a mask than it is uh, just, you know, to be safe, but I don't know. But yeah. Yeah. So the pandemic is still raging on, but the quarantine is lifting. I'm seeing effects every single day of what's going on here. Uh, This week, I was sitting out um, on my front stoop in the evening one night, uh, you know, having a cigar, as I like to do, and uh, this neighbor pulls up of mine, pulls up in his car, and he gets out with like a suitcase, and he's looking like super physically fit, like, you know, and I hadn't even seen him in about two and a half months. I thought he had moved. I legitimately, like, I had conversations with other neighbors, like, yeah, that guy's moved. He's, he's gone. So here he comes and he, he's coming in. He looks like he's just been doing nothing but working out for the last two and a half months, you know, and he's lifting his suitcases up with like one finger. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I thought you moved out. And he's like, no, I've been quarantined in Connecticut for two and a half months. It turns out he went up to Connecticut on a business trip and then, uh, the world turned upside down and, uh, he's, he just, he just got back like Tuesday night. (laughs) And then the next morning I was sitting back out on that front stoop, having myself a cup of coffee and, uh, reading a book. And this old guy, you know, this old elderly man just is walking up and down the street. I'd never seen him before on my street. I usually see the same people walking by every day. And, uh, he's walking around and, and I noticed that like he, he's sniffing, you know, and he stops in front of my building and I just look up because he's there for like an uncomfortable amount of time. And he looks at the building across the street from me. You know, he's like a little Ichabod crane, you know, his nose is just going crazy. And then he like turns toward me in my building and he's like, (laughs) he like looks up to the heavens or up at the third floor where, uh, 
where I have a neighbor who lives there and uh, he's a pothead and he starts talking to me and he's like, man, I lived up there up the street. My dealer, man, he's been quarantined somewhere for two and a half months. I can't get any marijuana in the city anymore. I was like, oh man, I guess that that's, I'm sorry. And he says, yeah, man, I've just been walking around the neighborhood. It's come to this. I'm just like walking around seeing if I can smell pot. (laughs) And, uh, apparently what he, yeah, what he's been doing is just walking from building to building, just trying to like get in, hone in on that pot smell. And I guess his plan was just to knock on the door (laughs) of where he (laughs) smells the pot and just, uh, ask if he can, uh, if he can get on on this, I, I don't know. <laughs> so, but yeah, Alabama, the numbers in Alabama of uh, COVID-19 continue to go up. Uh, we are a, a high infection state. And as a matter of fact, you know, You know, this is the summertime, and as I've talked about multiple times in the show, usually in the summer I like to, uh, you know, I like to go uh, on vacation with my wife. It's somewhere we go uh, every single year. Last year we went to Niagara Falls. And this summer we, we're going to put those plans off because we can't go anywhere. Not only has, uh, obviously, this quarantine been really difficult on uh, our money situation, so we don't have as much money as we would usually have this time of year, uh, but so much stuff is still closed down, it just wouldn't be worth it. My wife and I are also teaching summer camp throughout July, but this week it turns out that one of the weeks for summer camp actually didn't make enough numbers. And so I was like, okay, now we have an extra month, an extra week in July. Maybe now we can actually go somewhere. But then this news came out that uh, Alabama is a high infection area. Many states that you can even travel to are requiring people from high infection areas to self-quarantine for 14 days. And if they don't, then um, you can face stiff penalties. So yeah, here's here's an article in Forbes, like uh, Connecticut. On June 24th, Connecticut joined New York and New Jersey in launching a new mandate requiring travelers from states with high rates of COVID infection to self-quarantine for two weeks. Travelers from states with infection levels of 10% per population, per 100,000 population, on a seven-day rolling average will be required to quarantine upon entering New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut. Currently, the new mandate applies to travelers from Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Texas, Utah, and Washington. Jeez. So yeah, I I can't go into any of those places. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. I can't go to Connecticut and see like uh, the Berkshires or New York and see... um, yeah, there's nothing in New York. No, <laughs> I can't go to New Jersey and see like the birthplace of the drive-in theater. 
Can't do any of that. Can't go to Kansas. It says if you step foot in Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Maryland, you need to 14 days self quarantine when you get to Kansas. God dang it. I was going to go to Topeka. (laughs) Can't go to Maine. I can't go see Stephen King up in Maine. Earlier this month, the Pine Tree State rolled out a brand new initiative that offers visitors a choice. I thought Alabama was the Pine Tree State. We have like the Longleaf Pine here. Oh, well. Self-quarantine for two weeks. Adults who receive a negative COVID-19 test within 72 hours of arrival can forego the 14-day quarantine upon arrival in Maine. Okay, so that's good. So you get to Maine, you take a test, you wait three days, and then you can go see Stephen King. (laughs) New Hampshire. Can't go to New Hampshire. I can't. I don't know what there is to do in New Hampshire. Can't go to New Mexico. I can't see uh, the Alamo. Can't go to Rhode Island and see where they filmed Dumb and Dumber. So, yeah. I mean, basically, we're trapped here in Alabama. And you're trapped in here in the studio with me on a Saturday night. This is Mike Booty. You're listening to The Midnight Citizen. Here's some music for you. I'll be back in a minute. Well, here I am. I'm busted down in Lufkin. Just across that Louisiana line My baby's waking up in Morgan City And I'm stuck in these East Texas pines Had a cup of coffee in a cafe Hoping that if I ease my mind Headed out for Abilene But only made it halfway And I'm stuck in these East Texas pines Wish you missed me Well, I don't know But when I get on track Looking back, gonna take these wheels and roll. Maybe I can find someone to help me. Maybe I can make up for lost time. But everybody's in church on Sunday, and I'm stuck in these. All right, Ian, come on.
toast. I did this toast last week, and I messed it up, so I'm going to try and do it right this week. I'm drinking some whiskey here. I'll give you a second to do the same. Pour yourself a glass. Okay, seconds over. All right. You can pause me. Okay, now unpause me. All right. Here it goes. To my lovers and all my sweethearts, may they never meet. (sighs) That a boy, Luther. (laughs) Welcome back to the studio. Midnight Citizen Studio. I hope you enjoyed that music break. It was a fairly long music break, but uh, I enjoyed it. Kicking us off, we had a song called East Texas Pines. Nice country western rock music by Miller and Sasser. And then we had a song, another song uh, this week from Forget the Whale by Ghost, quickly becoming one of my favorite um, recording groups, one of my favorite artists on the freemusicarchive.org, where I get all the music that I play on the music breaks uh, for the show, The Midnight Citizen. That was from the album Take to the Skies. And yeah, uh, Dan from Forget the Whale actually reached out to me this week and said, uh, thanks for playing uh, our music on your podcast. I mean, Dan, the the pleasure is all mine, honestly. I just appreciate it so much that uh, musicians just put all this time and energy into recording music. It's, 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 it cannot be easy. And then they make it all available. Uh, for free to, for, you know, freeloaders like me to uh, play on their podcast. So I really do appreciate it. Thank you. (laughs) So, uh, I want to remind you, uh, once again, uh, the midnight citizen show tonight is live streaming. If you miss the live stream, you can catch it on YouTube. It is up there now, barring any technical difficulties. Uh, I do have some people listening to me live right now. looks like I have about, um, four people. I think one of those is actually myself because I've got it uh, tuned in on a monitor here, but I do have uh, they, they are talking to me though. Uh, we've got Paul. Shout out to Paul. Uh, Paul is uh, watching the show on his uh, television right now. He's watching it on his mammoth 65 inch screen with surround sound. So here's a little gift for you, Paul. Pow! once again i did that to him in the pre-show but anyway if you're still watching you're not falling asleep yet in a haze of whiskey and cigar smoke uh, i'm glad you're joining me with uh paul and i know where paul is right now he uh was very gracious he and his wife uh were very gracious to uh host me uh this week at their house uh paul had listened to some of my recent shows and reconnected with me we used to work together years ago and uh, went over to his house and we had some cigars and he just gave me an uncomfortable amount of Maker's Mark, but it was all very appreciated. <laughs> so, so it's good to uh, good to have you tonight. And of course, we have Steve who's listening also, who uh, is saying some interesting things. When I was talking about Gary Puckett and the Union Gap just a few minutes ago, um, Steve he was listing all these other uh, songs about. Uh, underage courting uh there was a song he mentioned by kiss 
uh, called Christine 16. And then a song by Winger. Uh, what was that song called by Winger called? He was just, he said it's just called 17. Was it Winger? That was the, the shirt, um, that, uh, Stuart wore on Beavis and Butthead, wasn't it? The, uh, the next door neighbor Christian kid. He listened to Winger and songs about underage dating. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Steve also asked if I uh, could put my lost episode, even if I found this episode again, which I actually, I do have it, okay? He wants me to put it back on the archive, and, and I will never put it back on the archive. I'm sorry. I really apologize. It's episode number 94. I don't remember the the, the, the title of it. But yeah, that, that episode, uh, is where I went. It's from a time, a very dark week in my life where, uh, I was facing this time where I had just lost a job and I was in a very bad place. And I said a lot of things on that episode that I regretted. I tried to keep it respectful, but I, I think I, at some point got into a rant and, and then went home and like furiously released the episode so I could get all of my selfish thoughts out into the universe. And, uh, and then I very quickly retracted it. And then a day later I got my job back. So, uh, (laughs) uh, I'll tell that story sometime. Yeah. He, he does have a point that I'm no longer working at that job. So he says, what's the harm? Well, I think the harm is I'm working at another job right now. And, uh, I, I do not, I, I just simply, it was not a very, proud moment in my professional career. So episode 94 is, uh, is lost to history. I'm afraid to say (laughs) so, but if you want to watch, uh, and listen to all the current episodes, once again, I want to remind you that I do have a, uh, podcast feed. Uh, it's on iTunes and we're on Stitcher and, uh, and YouTube. And, uh, I don't know. There's another one out there. I forgot about, I mentioned iTunes. Yeah. Where else are we? Spotify. Yeah, we're on Spotify as well. So, you know. So, if you got uh, if you got an interest in listening to these shows, okay, more of them, downloading them, subscribe to them, please do on any of those podcasting apps. And if I'm not on your favorite podcasting app, then drop me a line at mikebooty at gmail.com, and I'd be happy to uh, submit the RSS feed and, and get up there, okay? update from last week. Last week, I uh, talked a lot about nostalgia, okay? And uh, how I feel like it is an impossibility to go home again. Um, as that big bad Tom Wolf once said, Thomas Wolf, Tommy Wolf, okay? Tommy Wolfman. Can't go home again. Why can't you go home again? Because you're not welcome there. some point you have to stop looking to the past. You got to let the memories be the memories. And, uh, and that's it. My wife and I, this week were watching uh, wet, hot American summer, uh, 10 years later, which wet, hot American summer is a, a show. It's a movie that came out about 20 years ago about these kids at summer camp. It's very over the top and very silly and very spoofy. And then they came back to Netflix and they made uh, two 
uh, back-to-back series. One was uh, the first day of camp, which took place... The, the movie t- takes place the last day of camp, and the, the show took place on the first day of camp of that same summer in 1981. And then they came back a year later, and they made a 10 years later where the campers all come back in 1991. And the, the overall theme of that 10 years later one was that um, you may be the king, but you are not the king no longer. You know, there are just some things that you can never go home to because you're not welcome there anymore. And you got to let the memories be the memories and the past be the past. And this week, I had one day where I went home again. Not to my parents' house, okay? I'm not talking about that. Uh, I went, I was out doing a food delivery one day just to get out of the house and make a little bit of extra money. And I ended up in uh, Trustful, Alabama, which is, uh, it's not that far from where I live, but it's far enough from where I want to be. You know what I mean? Because sometimes you take a food delivery with some of these apps. I was working for Postmates and uh, they'll send you way out there to nowhere. So I ended up in the middle of Trustful. And I said to myself, you know, I'm here. I might as well go a little bit further. So I ended up going to um, Moody, Alabama, which was where I lived from about 1986 to 1992. Uh, I think it was. So I lived there all those years. And I've been to Moody several times within my, you know, since I moved away 28 years ago. Uh, but never as much as I went this week. You know, over the years, of course, I've gotten off the interstate coming home from Atlanta or going to Atlanta or going to my grandmother's house. You know, I've gotten off at the interstate at Moody, Alabama to like pee or get a Coke, you know, or eat at the Cracker Barrel. Uh but this time I, I actually went into Moody and uh, I drove by and I, I saw all of these old places that just, it's like time stood still in Moody. Like right there on the interstate, of course, there's been a lot of development and uh, move in. It started with the Cracker Barrel back in 1991 that moved in just off the interstate. And then when the Cracker Barrel came in, there was just this big sea change in business in Moody, Alabama. But if you go a little bit about a half mile or so past the interstate, everything has pretty much stayed the same. There are these big vacant lots that just are still void of life as they were when I was in elementary school in the second and third grade. This big ugly shed that used to be a Southeastern meats grocery store or no, it was a warehouse foods. That's right. It was still a big, ugly shed, but it, it, it's no longer a grocery store. Now it's like a gym in a big, ugly shed. But I was driving by there. I was like, man, there's the parking lot where I remember I was sitting, listening to the car radio one hot summer day in something like 1990 or 1991 and finding out that my uh, hero Pee Wee Herman had been arrested for uh, indecent exposure. That's the one memory I have of that parking lot <laughs> in Moody, Alabama. I'm not trying to laugh or anything. That's very serious, but maybe he was a Gary Puckett fan. But yeah, so I, I drove further on and I, I, I drove by my old house and I talked about last week how 
I had gone by my my wife's old house in, in Homewood, Alabama, where she had grown up as a teenager. And we had stopped in front of the house and taken some pictures so that she could send them to her dad. And they completely redone the landscaping and, and redone the siding and painted it. It just didn't look familiar at all. And I felt like we should not loiter there for too long because the owners were going to come out and, you know, get angry at us for, for just loitering there. And I had the same feeling when I went by my house in Moody, Alabama, that I moved out of when I was two and 10, excuse me. And I haven't been there in 28 years that I was going to be asked to leave. I'm not welcome there anymore. Okay. And everywhere I went, you know, the, 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 the backyard of, of my house in Moody that I could see from the road, my old church, the first Baptist church in Moody, uh, the Moody elementary school where I went from the first to the uh, third grade, they all looked so much smaller than I remembered them. Like, seriously, I, I had memories of playing in those places and they just looked so much smaller than I remembered them. I know that's kind of cliche that, you know, when you're a kid, everything is uh, much, uh, much bigger, you know, but it is true. It is true. And the only place that I went in that entire in, in that entire town that actually looked a lot bigger than I remembered it was I went down to the Moody Municipal Park, which is where I played Little League when I was uh, in the second grade. I played like backup right field and my, my little sister Melinda, she was the bat girl. <laughs> you know. And so I went down there and uh, it was a rainy day, you know, and, and, and I, I got out and the rain wasn't falling that hard. And I went to the dugout and I sat in this dugout <laughs> and just looked around and I was like, I have not sat in this space in this spot in 28 years. You know, I just wanted to kind of sit there and see what memories it would conjure up. And then I looked around and I, I remembered all these things that I haven't thought about in so long. You know, I, I looked at the other dugout and I remembered my, my friend, John Messner had come out of that thing during a, during a game. And he was so excited to, to, to get up to bat that he was running, he was running up to the batter's box and he was so excited that he didn't see that the guy was swinging, doing practice swings in the on deck circle. You know, that, that little circle where you go and you practice your swings before you actually get in the batter's box. And this son of a bitch brought his bat back without even looking and John without even looking and just smacked my friend John Messner in the teeth. And just blood went everywhere. That poor little seven-year-old kid was just on the on the ground crying for his mom, you know. I remember in that dugout, that was the first place that ever shot somebody the bird, even though I didn't know it yet. I think I was, like, using my middle finger to point to something. And a friend of mine said, Mom, he's shooting me the bird. And I got in trouble, and I didn't even know why. Just all these memories started coming up, you know. And it started to feel dangerous, that I was remembering all these things. And, uh, I was sitting there for about 10 minutes or so. And suddenly this one guy started to come around on like, um, 
one of those uh, bobcats, you know, that they use to move earth around. And he was looking at me. And I was feeling suspected. Because I was a grown man sitting in the dugout of a Little League baseball diamond, you know. So I wasn't welcome there anymore. So I picked up my stuff and got in my car. And I went home. Yeah, in Birmingham, uh, you know, as I said, businesses are slowly reopening. But it is sad, though, because uh, a lot of things to be uh, that future people of of Birmingham are going to be nostalgic about. A lot of things are uh, did not make it through the crisis. And this past week, uh, a major a major business uh, failed. In Birmingham, could not make it through the crisis. It was called the uh, Urban Standard Coffee Shop. And this is a big deal, you know, because downtown Birmingham, a lot of people don't go down there that 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 frequently. Or at least they used to not, because there weren't any businesses, unless you were like, uh, you know, working for one of the banks downtown or something like that. Or like a rent-a-car place. You weren't going downtown. And here comes this coffee shop about 12 years ago called the Urban Standard. And it creates this unique environment, this third place environment to go. And in the early days, I went there all the time. I used to take my computer when I was in graduate school and do work and drink coffee and uh, eat their cupcakes. They're really good cupcakes. And they, they've been a downtown staple. They, they are really credited as being uh, the one business that really started attracting business back downtown and bringing people back downtown. And, and all these lofts started to be renovated and people moved down there. It became kind of a nice little hip area, like a hipster area, you know. And so I was sad last week when I found out that Urban Standard had closed down. They could not make it through the uh, coronavirus crisis. And then in the news this past week, this happened here in Birmingham. Uh, there is this building in Southside in the Five Points neighborhood, which is about six or seven blocks from me. I could probably start walking there right now. I'd be there in 10 minutes. And, you know, it's this business district, and in the 90s, it was where the Five Points Music Hall was, and, and this place called The Break, which was like this pool hall, and, you know, it attracted basically college students from UAB, as well as just, uh, you know, people from the suburbs or whatever who wanted to come into the big city, you know, for a night on the town, play some games and smoke some cigarettes, and you know, I do remember going to, into some of those places uh, back before they banned smoking indoors in Birmingham years ago. And, uh, yeah, there were just cigarette butts all over the ground and, you know. But they've renovated this one building called the Woolworth Building, which I guess is where Woolworths used to be. I, I don't know. I didn't know that there were any Woolworths in the Birmingham ever. 
it must have been years ago if there was. I can't really say that. Woolworth. Woolworth. Right? But some real estate developers have bought the building and they've turned it into kind of a state-of-the-art gaming lounge, like a pool a pool hall and uh bar and restaurant. And they came under fire because uh, in this time where businesses are just so thankful to make it through a tough time, here's this building that came along, this this restaurant that came along and started uh, like, you know, telling people like in strict, uh, putting this really tense and strict dress code in place. And they did it in a very snarky way. Like, for instance, uh, what are some of their uh, rules? Yeah. Okay, so they said no camo or cargo pants. The 90s called. They want them back. No construction boots unless you're here to fix something. No skullcaps, kerchiefs, bandanas, etc. If you're a fortune teller, prove it. And so they came under a lot of fire, I think, because ultimately people were just saying, um, so you just want preppy white people there you know they didn't obviously we're not really uh, they were trying to say we don't want diversity uh, I think is what everybody was really angry about so of course in true 2020 fashion uh, people took to the Facebook page of this Woolworth building and uh, just firestormed their business and it's true I mean in, in 2020 you can't really uh, be imposing a lot of restrictions on your already very limited clientele. Um, you should just be happy to have people in there in the first place, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, the Woolworth building though, they, they, they issued an apology on their Facebook page. And, and they said, Birmingham, we're sorry. As you pointed out, our dress code policy was lousy. We've removed it community is a core value of the Woolworth and we want to be a place where Birmingham can build community. We're disappointed in ourselves for creating a policy that offends our fellow Birminghamians. I thought we were Birminghamites. I don't know. Maybe not. And makes them feel unwelcome. And we appreciate you calling out our failure. We have listened to your feedback and we will find a non-discriminatory way to ensure a sophisticated experience for our customers. We are hopeful that this dialogue will encourage other Birmingham businesses to eliminate discriminatory policies. I love how they do that. I love how they, they are the ones with the discriminatory policies and then they turn it around and paint themselves as leaders in the elimination of discriminatory practices. That's pretty good. That's some good marketing there. It says we will share your comments here with businesses across the city. Well, it wasn't really a problem until you guys uh, created it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so at least they've changed it. That's good. I mean, you know, honestly, I wasn't planning on going there anyway. Because I, I don't like paying, you know, full price for a shot of whiskey when I can get, you know, a bottle of it myself and drink alone.
without any further ado, why don't we take a trip now? Why don't we go down to the Video Street Video Store and see what's cooking down there, watch some videos, and I'm going to be back in just a minute. So, enjoy. Oops. Just go to Action Park. There's no other park like it. When it's hot out, this is a great place to spend the day with your family. So lots of big things for little kids to do. I love Action Park because it's so beautiful. It's like coming to Broadway. It's wonderful. Race like a pro. It's great. These are the most amazing rides in the world. I love it here. There's nothing in the world like Action Park. John Boyd and Ned Beatty. <laughs> Burt Reynolds is an actor, too. These four men are characters in a new motion picture that was filmed in the hill country and deep forests of North Georgia. The movie is adapted from James Dickey's powerful best-selling novel, Deliverance. And John Borman, the director of the film, tells how they shot it. The only way we could shoot this picture because of the problem of access to this river was that we would put equipment onto jeeps and we bumped out across little forest tracks for maybe two hours to get down to the river and then we'd take the four actors in two canoes and maybe four guys, me, the cameraman and assistant cameraman, a couple of grips in two little rubber boats and we'd start down the river. see that river and you realize what this country used to be, you can only weep for the destruction. Author James Dickey is also concerned over the way this natural world is being ravaged. Its survival is one of the central ideas of his writings. He talks about the losses imposed by men. We're never going to be able to get out of the man world if we don't have any place to go to from the man world. But that's why we need these rivers and streams and creeks and woods and mountains. You need to be in contact with, with nature as it was made by something else than men. Professor of English and Poet in Residence on this campus at the University of South Carolina. He shares with Robert Lowell the distinction of being one of the major American poets of his generation. Dickey's physical presence is striking. When he writes of challenging raging white water in a frail canoe, or hunting deer with bow and arrow in the wilderness, it's something he's done himself. As a man, he leaves his imprint on everything and everybody he meets particularly John Borman, with whom he worked on the picture. Well, let me tell you about James Dickey, because this man is one of the most extraordinary, outrageous, impossible, brilliant men you could ever hope to meet. His reputation 
on the campuses of a, of a stimulating and outrageous teacher, a great reader of his own poetry, a man who can galvanize thousand students, make a poetry reading seem like a pop concert. With maybe some dim racial notion of being the last, but none of how much your unnoticed going will mean, how much the timid poem needs the mindless explosion of your rage, the glutton's internal fire, the elk's heart in the belly sprouting wings, the pact of the blind swallowing thing with himself to eat the world and not to be driven off it until it is gone, even if it takes forever. I take you as you are and make of you what I will, skunk bear, cockajou, bloodthirsty non-survivor. Lord, let me die, but not die out. Another theme of James Dickey's is man testing himself against nature and discovering forces inside himself he never knew existed. And this is the idea of his story, deliverance. Putting those kind of experiences on film became a tough, bruising job for the four actors. How rough is told by the director. It was a big physical commitment because these actors, in order to get the veracity that was so important to the story, and it was an intensely dangerous situation, they gave that total commitment. There is a sequence which is quite an important scene in the film where the character of Ed, played by John Voight, has to scale a 200-foot cliff, and John felt that he ought to climb that cliff himself because he felt it was a kind of betrayal not to, to use a double or whatever, and he did. In the film, the men are caught in a harrowing bind, trapped between the wild rapids and a killer lurking out of sight. To reach him, Ed has to draw on strengths he didn't know he had or he and his friends will not survive. Burt Reynolds is John Voight's co-star. He plays Lewis, a powerful man, with an obsession for pitting himself against nature. He finds in James Dickey an expert with the bow and arrow and calls on his help to tune up for the film. John Borman is impressed with the actor's coordination. Burt Reynolds, of course, has a magnificent physique and is a tremendous athlete, has a stunning sense of balance. He also, is very interesting that uh, he took up the bow archery and achieved, in a matter of a few days, extraordinary accuracy. Those who know Dickie see much of him in each of his four characters. I love the woods and I love wild nature. I think any human being enjoys being where he likes to be. And it's an important part of my particular psychological makeup. What I would like for people to imagine when they see the film is that this guy, this mild-mannered suburban fella, businessman, is really a natural-born killer. The sheriff in the story is a man who is from those, those parts, and he looks it. And it seemed very appropriate that Dickie played the part of a sheriff. He didn't like acting too much, but he, he did it terribly well because he brought to it such a depth of experience and feeling. Now, what about this? Look, Sheriff, we've been through quite a lot. I don't know what's wrong with your man there. Mr. Queen's got a 
brother-in-law back up in there somewhere. He took off hunting a couple, three days ago, and nobody's heard from him since. And uh, Mr. Queen thought maybe all might have happened up on him somewhere. Well, we didn't. Hey, don't let him go. These boys is lying. Each day, the company worked their way down the Chattooga River, shooting until they reached the main body of the crew, miles downstream. If there were any smash-ups, or if somebody got hurt, the actors couldn't get help until the next pickup point. It was tricky planning, but then they all flirted with constant danger during the entire picture. without insurance because no insurance companies would insure us against the kind of risks that they were taking. But they did it and it gives the film and it gives their performances a quality which couldn't otherwise have been achieved. All I can say about those actors, Burt Reynolds and John Voight and Ned Beatty and Ronnie Cox is that every one of them has got more guts than a burglar. They'll try anything. And they've been beat up and banged around on those rocks. These guys really believe in this, and they're so deep into the parts that they'll take on anything. Any part of the river, any rapids, uh, Woodall Shoals, Sock and Dog, any of those places. Drew! Drew, what's the matter? of the making of this film, I had what I can only describe as a turbulent relationship with James Dickey and a bruising one. I think that I can say that I went 15 rounds with a champ and I'm still on my feet, and so is he. I'd much sooner have a row with James Dickey than I would a friendly conversation with most other people. Out of this relationship between James Dickey and John Borman has grown the motion picture, Deliverance. Being preemptive right now and drinking some water for what I'm about to do. So excuse me. Hope you enjoyed that trip to the Video Street Video Store. We had some uh, great records there. 
And we had a, a commercial for uh, Action Park from 1984. Uh, the famous, I should say the infamous, regional amusement park in New Jersey that claimed the lives of several daycationers over the course of about 10 years. And then after that, we had a a great little 10 minute documentary that I always remember playing uh, on the videotape before um, the movie deliverance. Just a fantastic uh, short subject on one of my favorite movies of all time and interviewing James Dickey, the author of one of my favorite books of all time, which is deliverance. I love that book. It's great. Wee! So I got um, I got somebody here on the live stream asking me. I won't I won't mention names. Can we have VIP access to episode ninety four, <laughs> the infamous lost episode where I um took a walk and ranted about all of my troubles in a very uncensored way. Um, no, (laughs) I'm sorry. Episode 94 is sealed in the Disney vault and you know that there's no, there's no way that it's getting out of there. It's in the midnight citizen vault. Maybe you can buy me another bottle of makers, Mark. I don't know. And with all that being said, let's head on down to Viscaga, Alabama right now, along the banks of the Cahaba River. It's been a radical week down there. This week saw the solstice, the official beginning of summer in Viscaga, and everywhere else for that matter. But in Viscaga, it's palpable. In fact, if you're one of the travelers who see the exit for this tiny town on the interstate, and you take the exit ramp for a quick pit stop at Larry Venture's Midnight Oil Gas Station, you can smell summer in the air. That's because on every afternoon of every summer solstice since before even the old boys can remember, there's been an informal convention of wood-burning grills and pit barbecues down at Hollis's Landing. This is a clearing in the brush about a quarter of a mile from Larry Venture's place, with a natural ramp of earth into the river where folks can dip in their canoes and inner tubes. Yes, the smell of the meat sizzling and the pork tenderizing is so strong it overpowers the fumes of the gasoline going into your tank, and the smoke drifts by in such thick, slow streams that you can reach out and write your name in it with your finger. Nearly the whole town is welcome at the summer solstice smoker, and if you wanted to add a small detour to your summer journey through Alabama and head down to Hollis's Landing, you'd be welcome too. And after you've had your fill of barbecue and good company at the riverbank, maybe you'll decide to venture a little further on from the interstate, down Route 78, and see a little more of what this town is about in this little season. In the early evening, it welcomes you with a pristine wooden sign, complete with American flags and bunting. Viscaga, USA, welcomes you. Lionel Kirkhoff, Mayor. Come with nothing, leave with friends. Coming down Stanton Street, the main business thoroughfare of the town, you see that life is well and profitable. The businesses are trafficked, but not overflowing. 
They are steady in their clientele, and the customers seem to know just when to exit so more can enter, and the owners inside can have plenty of time to repeat the process of good service with sincere conversation and a smile. You see Hetty Jean Holy's Curiosity Shop, complete with window shoppers browsing the storefront, which is cluttered with antique Schwinn bicycles, old wall-mounted rotary phones, and ancient tools of the Depression-era wife. The washboards and butter churners and pedal-operated Singer sewing machines. These things used to serve a live-or-die purpose in the household, but now the people buy them from Miss Holy for rustic decoration. And you see Bill Owen's hardware store and the old-timers on the bench out front watching the day pass into night. And you see Jamie Culliver's Ice Palace sitting on the corner of Stanton Street and High Boulevard, which is in the twilight of early evening, packed with sweet toots of all ages. The families crowd the patio, the children chase each other around, and the teenagers sit in their cars at the drive-in menus, making promises they're sure they'll never break. Here at Jamie Culliver's, you may decide to park and join them all. Even though the day is going and you really need to be on your way, you are compelled now to play a part in this town's nightlife. You are now a part of its history. So you grab two scoops of moose tracks and a waffle cone and walk back down Stanton Street the way you came, looking in the windows and browsing the storefronts you missed on your drive-in. You see the quiet interior of Doris Reynolds' jot shop, a stationery store, and the madness of Eugene Lutz's toy and hobby, where a tall, nervous man in glasses shouts at the kids without parents who storm the store, sampling the merchandise and dripping great gobs of ice cream from Jamie Culliver's ice palace on the floor. And you see a man in a green blazer shaking the hand of a man in overalls inside a Pete Purcell's insurance office. A woman shuffles around behind them, turning off lights, as it must be the last policy of the day. It's all very peculiar, you may think, to be in a town where the stores are branded by the names of their owners. Where else in the world does this happen in such uniformity? It's as if the Skaga is a town not of concrete and commerce, but of ownership. If something goes wrong in one of these stores, say a deal is broken or a contract is not satisfied, one knows who to hold accountable because it is unthinkable to conduct business any other way. It all seems to be working. There is not an unpatronized shop that is open for business this evening to be found, and almost every storefront is complete with a sign, the owner's name above it, and posted business hours. Almost. There is one vacant business on Stanton Street. Only one. And its bare facade is foreboding in contrast to the bustling shops that surround it. If you wipe away the dust from the window and peek inside, you'll see a deep, lonely blackness. Some metal shelves sit scattered and unaligned. There's a long counter that stretches the length of one of the sidewalls, and affixed to it are rusted stainless steel faucets and chipped plastic soda hoses. A couple of bar stools remain at the counter, long ago knocked over in careless abandon. In the back, there's a counter that rises a foot off the dirty floor. Behind it, empty wooden shelves. There is no sign above the store, but from the general floor plan, you have a pretty good idea what this place once was, and taped in the bottom of the dirty window, behind a thick cobweb, is a lone newspaper clipping from many years ago, with a headline that confirms your assumption. 
Hubert Callahan's Drug and Soda Open for Business. Below it is a black and white picture of the Hubert Callahan, a muscular man of middle age in black slacks and white lab coat, standing next to a woman and a young boy, who the caption says are his wife, Susan, and his son, David, age eight. They stand in the very spot that you are standing in now. Behind them, the pristine pharmacy with a sign draped across its entrance, proudly announcing the grand opening. The clipping is a tiny blurb introducing the Callahans to the town, and that they are happy and proud to be a part of the Viscaga business community. There's no date on this clipping, and due to the man's family being dressed in timeless attire of formal introduction, the picture may have been taken a year ago, or 50 years ago. Now, you must get in your car and leave Viscaga. The sun has completed another full arc on the longest day of the year, and you have miles left to go. You leave satisfied, though, and you feel the sign that welcomed you into town was right. You left with friends. You may not know their names, but they certainly smiled at you and welcomed you in as one of their own. They didn't treat you as a tourist and confine you to certain areas like other places. No, you walked among them, and for one small instant, you became a part of the town's history. Still, though, the dark place haunts you. As you wind down 78, further from the town, you think of the man and his family in the newspaper clipping, all smiling and long gone. What had transpired since that photo was published? Why was his pharmacy empty in a town where business was booming? In the kind of small town where most storefronts go empty, unless they are a franchise or owned by some big corporate chain. Perhaps you are haunted by the photo, because as you come closer to the interstate, you realize that in just a few moments you will be in just as much a forgotten piece of the town's history as the Callahan family. A fleeting memory and the sweep of time. As you pass Hollis's Landing, the last vestige of life in Viscaga, you see that another summer solstice smoker has passed into history along with everything else, and the clearing is now void of all life and smoke. That is, except for one car. It's a jeep with an equipment rack on top, which is empty. You remember your friends at Hollis's Landing telling you early in the day that this is a popular place for one to launch a canoe and drift down the Cahaba River. Sometimes one may stay overnight, as there are plenty of good and established campsites downriver. You assume this jeep must be here for the night, and then you think nothing more of it as you once again pass Larry Venture's Midnight Oil Filling Station and enter the interstate, the dark town behind you, perhaps for good. The jeep will indeed be there all night. Its occupants, four of them, launched their canoes from Hollis's Landing early that afternoon, just as the early arrivers to the summer solstice smoker were getting in full swing with their grills and pits. Now, several miles downriver in the dark night, in the woods, they camped, their canoes safely tied with bowline knots to pine trees, and them perched on the riverbank, sitting around a campfire that crackled under mess skillets of simmering southwestern corn and breast of chicken. And three of them, two boys and one girl in their later teenage years, listened intently in careful silence to another boy in his early 20s as he spun a tail. All right, so the day before this guy gets married, he goes over to his fiance's house to see her one last time before the wedding, and nobody's there, okay? He, like, looks all through the house, and then he doesn't see anybody, right? But then, when he comes back in the kitchen a second time looking for her, 
who does he see but his fiance's hot younger sister? You get me? And she's like smoking hot, right? Like cannons out to here. The guy telling the story, Gray Walker, extended his hands at full length in front of his chest, taking a breath to allow his audience to become lost in the fantasy. Across the fire, his buddy, Logan Gardner, chuckled long and loud, his fat body losing its balance and slinking off the log that he sat on. Next to Logan, Mac Nix sat more restrained with a polite smile, which thinly masked a cringy lump in his throat. He was sure he had heard frogs scatter into the water, which were startled by Logan. So she's real stacked, right? Logan said. Yeah, she's stacked, Gray said. Listen to what I'm saying. Big cannons out to here, long legs, short shorts, and you can see the outline of her. I think we get the idea, Cherry Prince chimed in. She was smiling and going along with it. But Mac couldn't help but notice a deep level of disdain for this guy sitting next to her. Or maybe it was embarrassment, a humiliating feeling that she got for hyping this Gray Walker idiot up to him, saying, he's a really sweet guy as she begged him to come along on the safari. Sure, Cherry, if he's such a sweet guy, then why do you need me as a buffer? Okay, so you get the idea, Gray said. So anyway, his fiance's hot sister is standing there in the kitchen, and she says to him, Sweetheart, I know you're getting married to my sister tomorrow. I know you love her and you'll never leave her, but sweetie, since this is my last chance, I gotta admit to you that I've had the hots for you ever since we first met. And if you want me one last piece of ass before you tie the knot, then I'm going to go on upstairs to my bedroom and the rest is up to you. (laughs) Up to you, Logan chuckled like an idiot. That's funny. It's like a metaphor or something. It's a pun, Max said, but wasn't heard. Kind of. Just a minute, ass face. That's not the joke, Grace said and continued. So the sister goes upstairs, right? And the guy like freaked the hell out, makes a beeline for the front door heads outside and there he sees his fiance and she's not alone. She's standing there with her whole family, her mom, her dad, her grandparents, everybody. And they applaud him. They say, you passed the test. You're truly worthy of marrying our daughter. And the guy smiles relieved. Moral of the story. Always leave your condoms in the car. The sounds of their laughter echoed through the woods. Even Mac had to admit that that was a pretty good punchline. Still, he came down from his laughter long before Logan did and saw Cherry dismissing it along with him, and they waited for the others to join them. They waited a while. That's killer, Logan said, struggling to balance himself on the log. Where'd you hear that one? Oh, a guy at the house told me. Think it was Sal who told it at a poker night one night. (laughs) Good stuff. Gray finished off his laughter and stirred the spatula in the skillet. So, Mac, it is Mac, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, Mac said, even though he'd already told this asshole five times today his name was Mac, right after Cherry had told him five times also. It's really McCord, but everyone calls me Mac. I'm sure they do, Gray said. He brought the spatula up to his mouth and licked it for a taste test. The message wasn't lost on Mac that this was a power move. Being the first to lick the shared surface, the spoon that would touch his food, It was probably some dick move they taught you in business school, which is where this dick had come from. So have you given any thought to pledging? Pledging? Max said. Yeah, man, a fraternity. You going to pledge in the fall? It's always best to do it as a freshman. By the time you're a senior, you're like a king. Uh, Actually, Mac isn't going to college. 
Cherry said, beating Mac to the answer. Oh, sorry, bro. Couldn't get in, huh? Uh, No, it's not that, Cherry again cut in. He's one of the smartest people at school. He just doesn't know what he's going to do yet. Where are you, his interpreter? Gray said. Let the kid speak for himself. Kid, Mac thought. Rather than sneer at Gray, he looked at Cherry and frowned. Mac and Cherry knew, just by looking at each other across the flames, that this had been a mistake, and Mac couldn't stay angry with her. He saw in her eyes a sincere apology, and he guessed he understood. Would have been the alternative to this night, stay home and play video games while Cherry went by herself into the woods with these guys, or maybe one of the other guys she had just graduated with, who could act as her comfort blanket in the presence of this loose cannon gray and his nimrod friend from college. No, she had asked him, she had asked him of all people, and now they were sharing secret glances, communicating without words. Maybe this wasn't such a bad idea after all. She looked amazing in the glowing of the moon, the sparks from the fire matching and accentuating her curly red hair. Finally, Max said, I applied to a bunch of schools and got in, but I don't think I want to go yet. I may take a year off. You apply to Auburn? Grace said. "Uh, Sure, I got in, but I didn't like their creative writing program. I get you, bro, but you got to remember that going to Auburn gets you a steal on student tickets to Tigers games. You get them at something like a 40% discount. You know how much those things go for regular? Mac didn't answer that, instead wondering what the creative writing program and football had to do with each other. The chicken and the corn finished cooking, and Gray brought out plates and silverware for everybody, and served them. He had taken it upon himself to do everything for them on this trip, and Mac figured that was more of his business school training coming in. At business school, he had said to Mac earlier in the day as they were meeting each other for the first time and unloading their canoes, They teach you the value of leadership. So Gray had demonstrated this. He told everyone what to do from the beginning, how to launch the canoes and how to paddle them down the river and where to row to avoid rocks and how to secure their gear from falling out and which knots to tie and how to hitch their boats to the bank. And he told everybody what the difference between a knot and a hitch was, even though no one had asked him. But his buddy Logan had listened intently all the way while Cherry went along with it and Mac, careful not to be noticed, rolled his eyes. Business school, Mac considered, must be a breeding ground for authoritative douchebags. Mac had wondered what Cherry saw in Gray, and why she hadn't asked herself the obvious question. What does this hot-shit college guy want with her anyway? Sure, Cherry was cute and charming, and to know her was to love her, but she had still been a senior in high school when Gray had met her on one of their college visits to Auburn, where he was already a student and had plenty of girls to choose from whom he didn't have to drive two hours to see. Obviously, he had to be a loser on campus, and desperate to identify himself as anything but a loser to anyone who didn't know him yet. Of course, based on Logan's idolatry of Grey Walker, he seemed to be a living, breathing god, holding court at the campfire. "'You got any more jokes, man?' Logan said, tossing his plate on the ground which he had cleaned before Matt could even take a bite." That last one nearly made me drop a load. Gross, man, Gray said. There's a lady present. Actually, I was wondering if Mac could tell a ghost story. Mac looked up at Cherry, shocked she would nominate him. Mac knows all about Viscaga and its ghost. He always had an A in history, didn't you, Mac? Is that so, Gray said. The smugness in his voice was not lost on Mac. Check out the history buff. My mom's the town librarian, so a lot of it rubbed off on me, I guess. 
Tell them the one about the guy who blinded himself. What was his name? Jim or James? A uh, Jeb, Max said. It could see Gray, Gray gazing at him through the flames. His business school sense of psyching out competitors in full swing. Yeah, that's not really a ghost story. It's something that actually happened. Even better, Cherry said. Ooh, sounds scary, Gray said. Next to Mac, Logan had pulled a bag of sunflower seeds from the leg pocket of his cargo shorts and was smacking loudly. I guess it's kind of scary, Max said. When you think about the fact that the guy lived around here, in these woods. Jeb was a carpenter who used to live out here with his dad. This was about 20 or 30 years ago. They lived in an old shack that his dad had built from scratch. For work, the dad would go into town and do all this contracting. He'd help folks build their houses or their deck additions. Any job that needed a hammer and a nail, this guy would do it, and he'd often bring Jeb with him. Well, one day, Jeb was helping his dad build a barn, and Jeb was off constructing the frame, and his dad was working a circular saw when he suddenly had a heart attack. It was a small one, not life-threatening, but the problem was that he fell on the saw, and it split his stomach wide open. His dad screamed for help, but by the time Jeb got to him, he was lying there, dead on the table. Bet that was a real mess, Gray said and Logan spit a flurry of seeds from his mouth. Uh, Yeah, it was. Um, So Jeb was devastated. He was raised by his father, and he didn't have any family he could go live with, so he just came back here to the woods. He lived alone in the small house that his dad had built for him, hardly ever going into town at all. He trapped his own game and virtually became a shut-in. Some say he went crazy, and in his psychosis started seeing the ghost of his father walking around the cabin. His stomach was split open and entrails spilling out. Gross, Cherry said. Mac watched as Gray seized the moment to put his hand around her back and pull her in close. Mac wondered if he was aiding and abetting her inevitable seduction, betraying his very reason for agreeing to come out here in the first place. Um, anyway, Mac said, He couldn't stand the sight of seeing his dead and brutalized father anymore, so one day he came into town and he walked right into the hardware store. He took a knife and split open a bag of lye and tossed it in his eyes, uh, blinding himself. Holy shit, Logan called out through his mouth full of sunflower seeds. That really happened? Uh, Yep, Max said. It was witnessed by five or six people and written about in the paper and everything. What happened to Jeb? Cherry said. He was taken into custody, and a judge sent him off to Bryce in Tuscaloosa. It's a mental institution. All right, so let me guess, Gray said, smiling. His father's ghost still walks these woods at night waiting for his son to return. I don't know, Max said. I've never heard anything about that, but Jeb seemed to think something was out here. He was convinced enough to blind himself. Looks like he needs some more wood, Gray said, not missing a beat or waiting for Mac to add any additional details. Whose turn is it? I'll go get some, Cherry said. She began to break away from Gray and stand up, but Gray pulled her back in close. Actually, buddy, Gray said, looking through the dying campfire at Mac, I think it's all you this time. Mac was sure it wasn't him this time. He had gathered most of the wood that they had already burned through, Gray in his leadership role dictating him to do so. If anyone should get the wood, it should be the fat slob on the log next to him, munching on his sunflower seeds. No problem, Mac finally said, and he pulled himself up. He went to the tent behind him, unzipped the flap, and got out his flashlight. Make sure you zip the tent back up, Gray called to him from his seat next to Cherry. We don't want any snakes getting in there, all right? 
Whatever you say, you big royal asshole, Mac thought to himself. Mac zipped the flap back up and walked into the woods. Whether the tent was zipped up or not, Mac was sure that Gray could care less. They brought two tents with them and put two up. One was for Cherry as the lone girl, and the other was for the three guys. Of course, that was the arrangement they had made in town, but Mac was sure that in the woods things would be different. And just as Gray had ordered Mac into the canoe with Logan, his excessive weight dipping the front end of the boat into the water as they rowed, Gray would surely talk his way into sleeping with Cherry in her tent and leave the two other guys to fend for themselves. It was a scenario that had haunted Mac ever since they had shoved off from Hollis's landing, him in a tent with a fat tub of guts and his snoring and farting, the crude sounds only being interrupted by the sweet and slow moans of ecstasy from another reality in a tent just ten feet away. When Mac had gathered an armful of sticks and other dry deadfall, he returned to the camp to find only Logan, staring at the glow of the fire and chomping slowly on his seeds. What took you so long, he said. Did old Jeb get you? It's his father, Mac said. Where are the others? They went for a walk. Well, they wanted a little alone time, if you know what I mean. And Logan began making a gesture with the pointer finger of one hand and the knuckle of his other that Mac had to look away from. Mac tossed some wood into the fire and stoked it with the long stick they had been using for stoking all night, and they sat in silence for a while, listening to the frogs croak and the mosquitoes buzz and the plops in the river. So you're a senior, right? Just graduated, Mac said. So how do you know that chick? Uh, we went to high school together, Mac said, assuming Logan meant Cherry, and also wondering where this doofus in his mind had been all day. This had been territory already well explored. She's pretty hot, huh? Uh, yeah, she's cute. I'm not talking about cute, Padre, Logan said. Cute's for your sister. She's like a 10 on the bone scale, know what I mean? You must see, suck to see her with Gray. No way you're getting her back now. No way. Gray had found a trail that led up a hill from their campsite at the river. It was overgrown with brush, which Gray took care of with a machete, making wide, sweeping chops while he instructed Cherry to hold the flashlight. Where are we going anyway? She said as he chopped. Uh, no place, I guess. Or maybe we want to see where this trail goes. I don't know. I just wanted to be alone for a few minutes. Hold that light steady, will you, babe? They made it to the top of the hill where Cherry pointed the light down and saw that they were standing on top of a ridge and no more trail to guide them. The light went about 15 feet down before it faded into an abyss of deep, bushy darkness. That's some ravine, she said. It's real romantic up here, right, babe? Cherry felt a move against her flannel, lifted up, and then there were his sweaty hands against her skin. You think we want to be getting back, she said. Don't you want to be alone for a minute? You feel good. It's kind of cold. You kidding me? It's humid as shit. Anyway, if you're cold, you know I can keep you warm. I appreciate that. It's just, I'm thinking we should just get back to the other guys. Don't worry about those guys. My boy's a real outdoorsman. Cherry figured he was talking about Logan, the goofball who had screamed like a girl earlier when he lifted up his shirt and saw a nest of gnats on his belly. She backed away from him, taking his hand in hers and giving them back to him. She tried to do it smooth and somewhat seductive so he wouldn't get defensive. It's nice tonight, isn't it? She said. Yeah, it is. He looked around, paying his dues, looking at the sights. I think that's a full moon up there. 
Too bad we can't see it through the woods. I'll tell you what, babe. These are good climbing trees around here. I'll bet we can climb up to the top and get a good look. No, I don't think. But before she could finish, Gray had already taken hold of a branch and hoisted himself up. Come on, I'll show you. I think I'll just wait here. Your loss. And he was off. Now, Cherry figured, consumed more with proving his own strength than getting with her. In any case, she was relieved to be past the moment of him coming on strong. She wiped the sweat from his hands off her skin and watched him move. Gray hugged the bark of the tall pine tree and slid up, finding his footing on the occasional branch. Sometimes I go rock climbing, so this is no big deal for me. You got to come on up here. I'll make sure you're all right. Cherry heard the snap about a split second before she heard the gasp and then the scream. She pointed the flashlight up just in time to see Gray's shadow falling from a branch that had given way. Ah! She saw the shadow fall in front of her, screaming all the way, and tumbled down the ravine, disappearing into the blackness. Ah! Then there was silence. Gray, she called. Are you all right? There was nothing from Gray's side of the ridge. But on the other side, behind her, she heard footsteps coming toward her. She turned to see Mac's flashlight and then Mac coming out of the dark. Behind him, far behind him, was the shuffling, huffing figure of Logan. What happened? Mac said. Gray fell. He's somewhere down there. I don't know if he's okay. Holy shit, Mac said, shining his light into the ravine. That's steep. Gray, Cherry called once again. There was nothing. They stood in silence, looking down, listening to the buzzing and the chirping of the woods. And then a voice, slow and groaning, came up at them through the wind. Damn, that hurt, it said. We're coming down to you, Cherry said, and began walking down the ravine in wide, measured steps. Mac began to follow, but Logan held his ground, still panting at the top of the hill. There could be snakes down there, Logan said. There could be snakes up here too, Mac said. You might as well come. So Logan brought it up the rear as they made their way down the hill, slowly. They followed Gray's groans to where the hill leveled off and found him leaning against the side of a small random building which stood alone in the middle of a clearing. You okay, hon? Cherry said as they approached him with their flashlights. I guess so. This building broke my fall. As Cherry knelt down in the dirt next to Gray and inspected his head, Mac panned the area with the flashlight, starting with the structure that Gray had fallen into. It was just a tiny tin shack, about the size of a modest walk-in closet. It immediately struck him as strange that it should be here. His first thought was that it was an outbuilding in someone's backyard, but there were no houses around for it to be an outbuilding too. They were in too remote of an area. It just stood alone here, in a small clearing that had been man-made and abandoned perhaps years ago. Mac figured all of this because of the bad landscaping. Clusters of weeds sprouted up under their shoes, and in the far corner, just before the clearing became the woods again, a single lone dirt mound rose up from the flat earth, covered in scattered patches of grass. I can't believe you didn't break anything in that fall, Cherry said. Dude, you're like a cat, Logan said. What can I say? Gray said, pulling himself up and temporarily losing his balance, falling into Cherry, who caught him and then set him standing again by himself. I'm limber as a jackrabbit. What the hell is this building anyway? I don't know, Max said. Looks like someone's work shed. It's too small to be a work shed, Gray said. Unless all they got in there is a hammer. Maybe it's Jeb's house, Logan said. 
Cherry could hear the nervous choke in his throat. Gray laughed. You dunce! That looked like a house to you. It's got no insulation, no subfloor. Jesus, man! Sorry, bro. I was just thinking out loud. Well, don't. Cherry watched Gray grab the back of his head and massage the knot she had felt under his thick blonde hair. She figured he was just in pain and he didn't mean the outburst. Still, he she felt bad for Logan, who backed off from Gray like a wounded pup, puppy. Mac, do you know who owns this land? Cherry said, changing the subject. Uh, nobody, I don't think. I think it belongs to the county. They annexed the land within a quarter of a mile of both sides of the river, so unless it's some utility shack, like maybe an access panel or something, I don't know why it should be here. An access panel to what? Gray said. Uh, tunnels, maybe. Sewers. But there shouldn't be any sewers under us. Not out here. Well, there's only way to, one way to find out. Let's open the sucker. Before any of them could tell him otherwise, Gray found the door on the other side of the tin shack and turned the knob. To everyone's surprise, it opened, and it was probably the first time in a long time that it had been opened. Gray pulled against the rusted metal with his fingers, the base of the door buried in several thick inches of hard, compacted dirt. Max stepped forward with the light and gasped as he saw what was inside. It was a gate leading down into the ground. It had come detached from its top hinges and hung leaning against the wall of the shed, creating a small, unobstructed passage in the earth. Of course, Max said. I don't know why I didn't figure it before. What is it? Logan said, cowering somewhere behind him. It's an old mine entrance. They used to mine coal out here, ship it out to Birmingham to be processed. I've heard of all the mines around town, but I've never been in one. They've been closed for years. That's some cool shit, Gray said, grabbing the flashlight from Cherry and stepping up to the gate. Like, literally, it feels crazy cool down there. Look how deep it goes. We gotta check this out. Logan, straggling into the shed, said, I don't know, man. What about cave-ins? That's in a cave, dumbass. This is a mine. He's got a point, Max said. There's no way we're safe down there. I mean, the roof hasn't been reinforced in 40 or 50. All right, fine, Gray said. Anyone who's a wet blanket can stay up here. I'm going down. When else do you get a chance like this? Gray stepped up to the gate and contorted his body to match the narrow crack between the unhinged gate and the wall of the shed. Then he slid in, the tunnel before him. Behind him, Cherry remembered the time just a few minutes earlier when Gray had gone and done something without assessing the risks and had fallen 60 feet down a steep ravine. Again, she wondered who Gray was trying to impress, her or himself. Or maybe it was that mysterious macho alpha male bullshit where the guy wasn't trying to impress anybody and instead trying to prove to the universe that he was the first and only guy in human history to come along and prove that he is indestructible. She knew all about this phenomenon in these southern country boys, and up until now had fooled herself into believing that she had cut ties with them all simply by graduating high school. But no, here was a living, breathing, macho douchebag from college before her very eyes. It was like looking into a crystal ball and seeing her college years. Guys like this wouldn't stop until someone or something stopped them. Jeez, that's a tight fit, he said and turned to them. Logan, you better stay up here. What are you, crazy? I'm not staying up here alone. There's no way you'll fit through there. You're too fat. How about the kids stay with you? How about the kid stays with you? Actually, I think I'm going to come, Max said. 
I think that's a good idea, Cherry said, searching for an excuse. Uh, Mac knows all about the mines. We see something, he'll be able to interpret it for us, right, Mac? Um, sure. Whatever, Gray said. You both can come on. Logan, you stay here. We're just going to be right down at the bottom, back in a flash. You promise you'll come right back, Logan said, his voice approaching a whine. Gray said nothing and turned to look down the tunnel. Reluctantly, Mac handed Logan his flashlight and then squeezed through the gate. Cherry followed him and they all began to descend. Behind them, Logan paced nervously. Mac counted the steps to the bottom. Twenty. Twenty rusty metal steps between the open air of the night and the pitch blackness of the cool, drafty mine. When they all reached the floor of the dusty red earth, Gray panned the flashlight to reveal that they were standing in a long, narrow tunnel that seemed to slope endlessly down, the beam of the flashlight dissipating before it hit any wall in front of them. Mac took note of the red clay that surrounded them, the floor and the walls and the roof. He said, It's iron ore, not coal. What? Gray said. This is an iron ore mine. It's the key ingredient for pig iron, which makes steel. Gray ignored the comment and walked further on. As they walked, Cherry noticed tunnels to her left and right spread out about eighty, about every 20 feet or so. Gray threw the light into them as they went, and they lit up large, hollow rooms of red dirt, which seemed to sparkle in the darkness. Every so often in the walls were small holes that looked like they had been drilled long ago, and there were natural columns of the glittering red rock, which Cherry assumed were the only supports keeping the roof from falling down on them. It's like a beehive, she said, her voice bouncing off the walls and echoing all the way down. I think what they did, Max said, is tunnel down a bit at a time, making these rooms as they went along so they could extract the iron ore. Those holes are where they must have put the dynamite. Sounds dangerous, Cherry said. Mac heard a touch of romance in her voice, and he was sure of it that Cherry was glad he was here. He had to admit that he was as impressed with himself as she maybe was of him at this moment. He was surprised how much he could tell from the mind by just looking around. He had no idea if any of the assumptions were right, but he was sure that right now he was the smartest person in this mine. Hey, a voice came from the way they had come up the steps and before the gate. You guys almost done down there? What a wimp, Gray said, and he began to holler back to Logan, but Max stepped in front of him. Don't, he whispered. You yell and it could bring the roof down. Gray looked down to find that Mac, in his urgency, had put his hand on his shoulder in a motion of stopping Gray's next move. And then Gray looked up, and the two locked eyes. Max saw that Gray was not giving him a look of gratitude, but a challenge, and being slightly wounded. And the guy had no intention of breaking off his eye contact until his challenger did first. You guys, look! Cherry next to them had her eyes on something that the flashlight had landed on. To Gray's satisfaction, Mac turned to her, and then they all followed the light to find a dirty, dusty welcome mat lying at the entrance to one of the antechambers, about ten feet in front of them. They stepped forward, and Mac lifted it out of the earth, where it had been encrusted by years of dirt, grime, and erosion. What do you suppose this is doing here? Mac said to himself. Oh my God, Cherry said behind him, and she took Gray's hand and lifted it up, shining the flashlight on the room before them. They must have stared for a full minute with their eyes wide open, never blinking, not to miss any of it. 
Before them was a couch covered in red dust, its fabric peeled to reveal the middle, the mildewed foam underneath. Next to the sofa was a decrepit recliner, its upholstery also ragged and scarred, and in front of both of them was a coffee table. It was a complete living room set, like a Price is Right showcase showdown from hell, Mac thought. They walked closer in and followed their eyes around the antechamber with the flashlight. There were bookshelves against the wall, stocked as a complete library, fiction and nonfiction, periodicals, and oddly, Cherry noticed, medical journals. There were wooden runner tables and footstools, their paint and fabric in bad to terrible condition. There was a king-sized bed complete with tables on either side. In one corner, Max saw another smaller chair, and next to it, a child's record player, the portable kind you could close and carry around like a suitcase. It was decorated with Mickey and Goofy and other Disney characters, and it was plugged into a metal converter box, which in turn was plugged into a battery. This isn't a mine, Max said. It's a house. On the coffee table, Cherry noticed an orgy of magazines scattered about. Cosmopolitan and Vogue, the New England Journal of Medicine, Mad Magazine, none of them less than five years old. Her eyes took particular note of one highlights for children issue. It was the magazine that, up until now, Cherry had forgotten all about. She had forgotten how she used to relish highlights and the mazes and word searches and other activities she did with a crayon. It was the only thing that, as a kid, had made the orthodontist in uh, office bearable. Gray continued scanning the flashlight around the room to scope out any corners or objects they had yet to pick up. Wonder where the bathroom is, he said. Suddenly, his light caught a moving object on the roof. He focused his light and recoiled as he saw a bat. It was sleeping, but it nevertheless made him jump back. Oh my God, Max said. Cherry, come look at this. He had found something on one of the bookcases. Joining him, they saw that Mac was holding something in his hands, a picture frame. Cherry immediately brought her hands up to her mouth, as if for keeping all the breath from escaping. Mac also seemed to be in shock. Gray, however, stood confused by the picture, which was a black-and-white picture of a family seemingly clipped out of a newspaper. The father, presumably, was dressed in black slacks and a white lab coat, and his wife and young son were respectively dressed in a dress and suit. They stood in front of a store with a sign on top that said, Callahan's Drug and Soda. It's the Callahan family, Max said. I don't believe it. Who the hell's the Callahan family, Gray said. Everybody in town knows about them, Cherry said, and pointed to the little boy. That's David. Remember, Mac? He was in second grade with us before. Will somebody fill me in here? Gray said. Now his voice was approaching a whine similar to Logan's. He began backing up from them, taking the light off the photo and showing them that he still had some power down here in the dark mine. Everybody in Viscaga knows about the Callahans, Cherry said. Hugh Callahan owned the pharmacy on Stanton Street about 15 years ago. His son David went to elementary school with me and Mac, but then his dad took him out to school, took him out to homeschool him. Hugh had a reputation in town for being an asshole, Mac said, finishing the thought. I was going to say control freak, Cherry said, but yeah, I guess you can say that also. At first, he seemed to be all right. He moved his family to Viscaga and bought the store within the week. It started out as a really nice place. 
I remember my dad taking me there every Saturday to get an ice cream soda, but then he shut down the soda fountain. He said it was bad for her health and that Americans eat too much sugar. He's got a point there, Gray said. After a while, it got to the point where you couldn't walk in the drugstore without Hugh Callahan judging you for something or shaming you. He'd scold people for buying cigarettes or tell people they shouldn't eat so much junk food. My mom told me once that she walked in with a prescription and he told her the big drug companies are secretly making us all sick, like they're constantly inventing new illnesses to distract us from the things that are really dangerous. She was like, what business is it of yours? Just give me my stupid pills. As Cherry told Gray the story that Mac had heard many times before from the people in town, from the parents and teachers and kids around the backyard bonfire, he used the shaky light to scan the bookshelf on which the photograph sat. He noticed that wedged in between a series of great illustrated classics was a stack of spiral-bound notebooks. He picked up one from the bottom of the pile, which smelled musty and felt damp. Flipping through the yellow pages, he saw that it was a picture journal. There were no dates above any of the drawings, but Max saw that they definitely told a chronological story. The pictures began as scribbles in a child's hand. A mother, father, and child stick figure standing outside a big box, which Mac assumed was Callahan's drug and soda. Then, the stick figures were standing outside a hole, which Mac figured was the mine. Then the stick figures went on several daily adventures, from hunting and gathering with rifles and traps, and the mother stick figure teaching the child stick figure at a blackboard. Mac rifled through more of the journals as somewhere seemingly far away, Cherry talked. Slowly over time, the drawings became better and more detailed, and the child stick figures matured. It grew in size, flesh, and muscle tone. It trapped rabbits and played in the river with its parents. And he got in trouble, with his father most of all from the look of it. There were plenty of drawings of the father, increasingly looking more like Hugh Callahan in the photo, with sinister features. Narrow eyes and disapproving smirks, and in one drawing, devil horns sprouting from his scalp. As time and the pages flipped forward, there were less drawings of the father, and the focus seemed to be more on the mother, sketched with smiles and hugging her son. Then, in the later notebooks, nearing the top of the pile, the drawings began to depart from daily life in the mine, and instead showed beaches and sunsets, and mountaintop views that looked like they could have been pictures in a magazine. And they had probably come from a magazine, Mac assumed, one from the coffee table or the bookshelf, David Callahan's only view of what the outside world looked like. Finally, Mac made it to the final notebook in the pile. He immediately noticed that the pages were not as yellow as the others, and the condition was more pristine. Only a few pages had been used. On the first page, Mac saw that the mother seemed to no longer be smiling. Instead, her features were pale and her cheeks flushed. In one landscape sketch that took up both pages, the mother laid on the bed with her son by her side, and Max saw that in a far corner of the page, in a circle that had been darkened by the furious scribble of a pencil, were two red eyes that watched them. They seemed to be watching Mac also, and out of the scribble blackness was a dialogue bubble. You only think you're sick. Anyway, the story goes that Hugh Callahan totally turned the whole town off, Cherry was saying. He apparently used to go to city council meetings and tell everybody that they were all going to die if they didn't take their health more seriously. 
He tried to get them to ban sodas and quarantine themselves for two weeks if they left town and came back. So pretty soon, I guess he got to them. They stopped coming into his store and buying things from him. You mean the idiots in your town actually believed him? Gray said, laughing. No, not that, Cherry said. It's just that nobody wanted to hear it anymore. They started going to Pell City to buy their drugs. And then one day, people woke up and Callahan's food and drug was closed. He just moved out and left everything behind. The family disappeared, and nobody ever found out what happened to them. Until now, Mac mumbled, barely loud enough for the others to hear. It's weird, Cherry said. But since he moved out all those years ago, no other business has ever moved into that building. Mac, do you ever remember anything else going in there? If he heard her, Mac didn't show it. He flipped slowly from page to page of the final notebook of David Callahan. His sketches showed the father with an eyedropper, dropping bits of a liquid into a cup, and then giving it to the mother to drink. And then there was the next page, which showed the father and son outside, the son with the rifle, presumably for hunting, but aiming it at his father. Careful, as if slowing down time could re- prevent the next twist in the story that Mac was sure would come, Mac turned the page and saw a dirt mound with the makeshift wooden cross coming out of it. All the other stores in town do fine on Stanton Street, but they've never been able to fill that one, Cherry said. It's like it's cursed or something. They're dead, Mac said. They looked up at Mac, Gray throwing the light off the notebook and spotlighting his face. They saw that he was pale, as if all the air had been sucked out of his flesh. What are you talking about, bro? Gray said. Give me the flashlight, Mac said. No way, man, it's mine, but Mac was off. He took the flashlight from Gray and ran out of the room. He stuffed the final notebook in his back pocket and with his free hand took cherries. Come on, he said to her. She ran with him down the tunnel and up the stairs. Gray ran behind them, trying to keep up. At the top of the stairs, they were greeted by Logan's flashlight, bouncing nervously off the walls of the shed. Thank God, he screamed as they wedged to the gate. What took you guys so long? You know I'm dropping loads up here waiting for you sons of guns. Ignoring his bitching, they followed Mac outside the shed, where he ran with his light to a single wide mound rising out of the weeds and bushes. Mac fell on top of it and began to dig furiously through the dirt. What is it? Cherry said. I thought it was weird when we first came out here, Mac said through his huffing and panting. Weird that a mound would just randomly be here. It's like a cemetery or something, which is what it is. With one last sweep of his hands, Mac leaned back from the mound and just sat looking at what he had unearthed. The others looked with him and saw two wooden makeshift crosses. They they had been pushed over by years of wind and covered by erosion, and now they laid exposed in the dirty earth, marking the final resting places of Hugh and Susan Callahan. Mac took the notebook out of his back pocket, opened it up, and handed it to Cherry. He brought them down here so they wouldn't get sick, Max said, catching his breath. They never they never left town. They were here all along. How did they die? Cherry said. It's in the notebook. His wife got sick, which is the number one thing that Hugh couldn't deal with. I guess he didn't want some virus or cancer killing her. If anybody was going to kill her, he was going to do it himself. David killed his father, Cherry said. She had found the page where David had aimed the rifle at his father, and then the next page where he buried his body. And then she flipped to the next page, which portrayed the mother, Susan, lying on the bed, her eyes closed, 
and a scribbled R.I.P. above it. And that was all. The rest of the pages were blank. He was trying to protect her from the man who was protecting them, Cherry said. So where's the kid, Gray said. I have no idea, Max said. He stood up and joined them, looking at the grave. He's not here anymore, that's for sure. I guess he finally got out. He's out there somewhere. They stood there with Mac in silence, listening to the crickets and frogs, the wind coming through the trees, and observing the silence of the earth. Finally, after a couple of minutes, Gray checked his watch and announced he was going back to camp if anyone wanted to join him. He took the flashlight from Logan, and Logan followed him, with great difficulty, up the steep hill and back to the river. They walked to the camp in two groups, Gray and Logan huffing through the woods, unable to get back fast enough, and Mac and Cherry far behind them, taking their time. So what are we going to do, Cherry said. I guess we'll have to stay the night, and in the morning go tell Sheriff Arquette. Man, nobody's ever going to believe this. They'll believe it when they see it, she told him. When they reached the river, the fire was on its last flames. Logan immediately went to his tent and crawled in, plomping his fat body down in his sleeping bag and snoring within seconds. Gray went in next to him and grabbed some supplies, his toothbrush and pillow and sleeping bag, and then he began to head for Cherry's tent, but she stopped him. Uh, What are you doing? I'm going to bed. What's it look like? Yeah, but that's not your tent. Yeah, it is. I brought the damn thing. But you said you were sleeping in the other tent with the guys. Well, yeah, but come on, baby. Night, hon, she said. Gray turned around the way he came, but then stopped short of his sleeping quarters and looked back at Mac. You coming, kid? No, he's not, Cherry said. And then she looked at Mac. Do you mind? Mac, pretending to mull it over, said, Uh, no, no, it's no big deal. I, I can sleep wherever you... And Cherry went back to the tent leaving Mac and Gray alone. They, le- they looked at each other for a long while, Mac seeing the challenge that it was. Finally, Gray broke off contact and turned back to his tent. Gray fought his way around L- Logan's long, wide body, which had fallen without consideration into the center of the tent, completely catatonic. He fought with his sleeping bag and pillow. He fought for a long time to get comfortable. And then he covered his nose and his mouth, The tent already smelled of southwestern fart, and then in the darkness and silence of the evening, he heard a shuffling next to him in the tent, and a moaning. That wasn't cool, you know, Logan mumbled. What are you talking about? You looking back at me and not saying nothing? I have no idea what you're talking about. Go back to sleep. When you were down there in the mine and I asked if y'all were coming back, Logan said, and you just looked up at me from the bottom of the stairs, you didn't say anything back. That wasn't cool. I didn't say anything because I didn't want to yell and cause a cave-in, you dingleberry. And anyway, I wasn't at the bottom of the steps. I was down in the tunnel. Uh, No way. I saw you at the bottom of the steps. You just looked back at me. I saw your eyes. You stared at me. And then you went off without saying nothing. When Mac unzipped the flap in the morning to walk into the woods and pee, he noticed that the fire was still smoldering and the other tent was gone along with one of the canoes. He called to Cherry, who groggily moped outside and woke up instantly when she saw that they had been left out here. I'm sorry he left, Max said. I know you liked him. Uh, No, he was trash, she said. I don't think I'm going to Auburn after all. What are you going to do? 
Uh, maybe just wander the earth, Cherry said. See what it has to offer. Just like David Callahan. <laughs> she went back inside the tent to get a couple of more minutes of sleep. Mac went into the woods to gather some wood and get the fire started again. Once he got a spark and saw the flames rise, he put on some coffee and sat alone, waiting for it to perk. He admired the mist coming off the Cahaba River and the sounds of the woodpeckers drilling the trees, and he spotted several cardinals perching themselves on branches. He loved summer mornings like this one. really admire what those guys over at audible.com do <laughs> reminding you that you can read this and other stories like it over at my website mikebooty.com slash writing these tales from Viscaga, Alabama which always start as two or three page stories and balloon into, into epic shorts. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at the live stream. I really cleared the room out with that one, didn't I? <laughs> oh, Hey, thanks, Paul. <laughs> Paul is uh, somehow still watching. He must be having a good cigar out there on the porch. He said, epic tale. Thank you very much. Well, from Birmingham, Alabama, this has been your Midnight Citizen Show. Thank you so much for joining me here tonight for a nice, epic, long show. I think actually it's shorter than last week's show, somehow. I don't know. By probably about a minute or so. Um, once again, I'm over at MikeBooty.com uh, slash The Midnight Citizen. You can also check me out at uh, Twitter, which I'm never there, but you know you can check me out anyway. At MikeBooty. Instagram, Mike Booty, uh, Facebook.com slash The Midnight Citizen. I'm everywhere. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, subscribe to me on your favorite podcast app of choice. Why not? We'll sign off on a toast tonight. Paul, if you're still out there in the night drinking your maker's mark i think we left a little bit of it the other night maybe you still have some of it left here's one to you buddy thank you for staying up with me through this whole thing ah (coughs) keep your eyes open